Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Good morning, church. Good morning. We're all awake. That's good. It's a pleasure to be with you again. It's always a joy to come and minister to you, to minister with you, uh, to open up God's word. I believe the last time uh, I was here to preach, uh, it was the day before my wife's due date. And so since then, our little baby boy Malachi's come to the world. He's five months. He's super cute. It's been just God's gift to both me and Bree. But just want to thank Andrew for inviting me, Pastor Andrew, for inviting me to open up the word, to trust me to do this wonderful task, this weighty task, and want to invite you uh, to open up your Bibles to what we just heard read by our brother, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 12 through the end of the chapter, verses 21. And as you open up the word, we'll see it on the screen as well as we work through it. When I was preparing this message, I was taken back to a a story that occurred many decades ago. A man, Karol Takis, you may or may not be familiar with him, was a member of the Hungarian pistol shooting team. He also was a top shooter in the world. He had won many national and international championships in shooting and was anticipating gold at the upcoming Olympics. 1940 to be uh, exact. But while he was preparing for this Olympics, while serving as a sergeant in the army in 1938, a defective grenade would explode in his right hand, completely shattering it. And for most, this would be the end of what was a dream, a closed door. But for Taka's the dream doesn't end with a shattered hand. After about a month in the hospital, he would come to realize that he didn't have to feel bad for himself. In fact, he still had one functioning hand left. So he would train himself to shoot with his left hand with the goal of becoming the best shooter in the world still. The following year, 1939, Takis would go to a national championship in Hungary and he would be asked by fellow competitors, oh, are you, are you just here to watch? He would say, no, I'm not here to watch, I'm here to compete. He would go on to win that championship in 1939. And in 1940, as you know, the Olympics would be canceled due to the war. And again in 1944, but in 1948, he would come ready, prepared, and would win gold the Olympics and do so again in 1952 at 38 years old. There's a lot of lessons to be learned in this story, but one I think important for us as we approach our text is the importance of having a goal in our sight, something that gives us the power, the strength to take the next step forward. For Takas, even with obstacles, a shattered arm, Olympics canceled, Those would not deter him from the prize that he had set his eyes on, and he would move forward. 
Sue Carroll, he, he demonstrates a, a willpower that a lot of us do not share or have, but still would not be sufficient to obtain the prize that we are seeking that Paul puts in front of us. But as Paul reminds us, the prize that we seek, Jesus Christ himself, the one that we must press towards, it is Christ himself who will give us the strength to obtain the prize of himself. He is what we look for. He is what we seek to obtain, the perfection that he has, but he is who will give us the power to do exactly that. So we're going to work through these verses. And my hope for us as, as we walk through this is that we will see the need for us to fight for Christ, to fight for Jesus, and as we do so, we look to the example of others, and we await glorious perfection. And what I hope we will see, what I hope we will learn, is how this is connected to our joy. So let's look again at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, as we look at the word, we, we pay attention to what the text is saying. As we do so, we notice that verse 12 through verse 14 repeats some important things. Verse 13 begins similarly to verse 12. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And verse 14 begins similarly to how verse 12 ends. I press on towards the goal for the prize. Paul wants to make it plain. He wants to make it clear in case there's confusion. If you read the first half of chapter 3, Paul exclaims, I have no confidence in the flesh. But then he lists his spiritual credentials, the things that make Paul, in the eyes of the world, phenomenal. By the time we reach verse 11, though, Paul is pointing us to a glorious call to a glorious resurrection that we long for, that we wait for, the resurrection of the dead. But what Paul is saying here is that I have not made it there yet. I have not arrived. I have not been found perfect yet. But it doesn't mean Paul is waiting around for perfection. As he writes, he is pressing on to take hold of it. And I hope you see that in this one verse, Paul is rejecting two ideas. A perfectionism that says, I've made it. We've made it. We are already where we need to be. I've achieved all there is to the faith. And at the same time, he's rejecting a kind of lax attitude that as Christians sitting, twiddling their thumbs, waiting for God's sovereignty to work itself out. No, Paul demonstrates a humility in realizing even I have not gotten to where I will be. And he demonstrates a discipline in showing us that we are called to strain and run after that hope, that perfection, the resurrection. But he notes, Christ has made me his own. I seriously hope you don't read verse 12 only in part. If you do, you might make the mistake of thinking a humble spirit and hard work is all you need to get close to God, to obtain what he has offered to us in perfection. Paul's ability to pursue Jesus happens because Jesus has already pursued him. Jesus has already made Paul his own. 
I love the way the original language illustrates this. Instead of writing, Christ has made me his own, it actually says, Jesus has taken tight hold of me. He has seized me. He has taken me into his hands. Christ has made me his own. That means that the blood shed on that cross was a payment enough for the debt you've incurred in your life. That means that through Christ's death and resurrection, your debt has been cleared, that it's been affirmed by his life, and now we who were once lost have been brought into the fold of God. We have been taken, held, seized tightly by Jesus and made into God's children. And so perfection is possible only because the perfect one has taken hold of us. And so this is why Paul can say, press on, strain, pursue, because we know we have not arrived because we look at the perfect one. We see his light in partial glory, not as we will one day, but because we can see him even so dimly, we know that we still must go on. But what we're told is that that perfect one is calling us. He is drawing near to us. And so we strain. We run towards him. And the light of his glory begins to expunge the darkness that surrounds us. And that is not an easy process. It's a painful process. It's a process we call sanctification. The looking more like Jesus. And so as we walk as we crawl, as we run towards Jesus, as the light begins to mold and change us, we groan in joy. Paul knows that he's debt-free, but that doesn't mean he's sitting around waiting. Life doesn't stop after you've paid your mortgage, after you've paid your college debt. There is a freedom to be had on the other side of debt. So Paul is living in that freedom because of what Christ has done for him. And we do the same. This is what Paul says in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There is a godly frustration here. Paul wants to be where Jesus is, and the reality is, that his present existence does not conform totally to what will be. Paul knows that he hasn't made it, but refuses to stay in place in thought or in action. And so he forgets what lies ahead. Perhaps frustrated with guilt and past mistakes, knowing what life once looked like, the persecution of Christians, the living in religiosity, or even in his great accomplishments, Paul knows that he's done great works for the Lord, the planting of churches, the raising up of pastors and leaders. But either way, Paul does not dwell on the guilt or pride of the past, but looks upward and onward in the hope he has in Christ. For athletes, a short-term memory is vital. Whether it's an interception thrown to an opposing player, whether it's a missed shot in a hoop or a goal, the ability to forget Past mistakes is important as those things hold you back and down from what lies ahead. The same with success. The success of victory 
makes you lazy, keeps you lax, makes you overconfident in what you think you can do. But no, Paul, like an athlete, exercises short-term memory, forgetting what lies ahead, only looking to what is before him, Christ. I think the encouragement for us is to not let the guilt of yesterday lie to you about what you are called to today. Your guilt will say, do not go to Jesus. Your guilt will say, fix your sin before you look to him. Your guilt will say, you must be reconciled to your sin before you can be reconciled to Jesus. But Paul is reminding us to be looking ahead, to realize that it's only in looking ahead and seeing Christ that we can actually move forward in our debt, in our sin, in our reconciliation. It is not looking away. It is looking forward towards Christ that we can move. And to be clear, this is work. There is a straining, but this work is the yoke you were meant to carry in Christ. This burden is meant to be a joy, a painful joy not born out of the strength of your will, but born out of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. When you wake up the following morning after a workout, that pain you feel in your muscles is not because something wrong happened. It is a good pain. There is a good groaning that happens after that that is sign of growth. In the same way you will feel those groanings in the work that Christ is doing as he makes you more and more his own, as you are transformed by his marvelous light. And so Paul continues in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize is the culmination of the whole work of salvation, perfection, joy, healing, abundance, riches, the presence of King Jesus. That is the great hope that sustained Paul. He pens this letter in jail. He pens this letter with experiences that are uncomfortable, inconvenient, painful. But Paul pens this letter with a kind of joy that is sustained by the hope he sees in Jesus. Jesus is the end goal, the prize that Paul is running after with his entire body. And so we do the same. In Christ's strength, we, we strain for whole bodies. We embody Jesus' example. We live for the sake of others, willing to sacrifice our own lives that he might be glorified. We risk it all for those he has called we seek the building up of his church. For some of us, to strain for Jesus, all that might mean is the faint whispers of prayer. All that might mean is leaning on heavy in the Holy Spirit, depending on his groanings, your groanings to be given up to the Lord by him. And that's okay. Paul's call is to simply look 
to Jesus, to strain in any way we can to see him, to fix our eyes upon him. That is the call, to not wander away from him. Verse 15 continues to show us that it is God who does this work in us. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything in you thinks otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. The word mature might be better understood as perfect. And that might read strangely to you. Let those of us who are perfect think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What Paul is getting at is that if you have been taken, held, seized by Christ, you are perfect. You have been perfected. And in that perfection, you recognize you are moving towards glorious perfection. In the places that you are not perfect yet, God is going to make it plain for you. God will make it clear for you. And he will do that work of perfecting you even as you are already perfected. In Christ, we have been given a humility that allows God to work in us, to transform us, to mold and sanctify us. He does this by his word. He does this by his spirit. He does this by his people. God is conforming and molding his people that they might bear his image to the world. Our role in this can be summarized in some ways by verse 16. Only let us hold true to what has been obtained, to what we have attained. I think the reminder here is that what we are seeking, we already have. Like hanging over the side of a cliff, holding a rope, being pulled up by a Savior, we have an image of Christ who is pulling us up into glorious eternity. And the call for us in that moment Hold on. Hold on. Don't let go of what you have already attained. This is the work that Jesus is doing in us. And I want you to see how this work of sanctification, of looking more like Jesus, is connected to your joy. In some ways, the Joy is the inner workings of sanctification outwardly manifesting itself in your life. Because the more you look like Jesus, the less you look down. The more you look up at the light of his glory. The more you look like Jesus, the less you fix your eyes on the temporal, the more you fix your eyes on the eternal beauty of the sun. Christ, the source of your joy. We need to recognize that in Jesus, we don't find joy. Joy has already found us. It has taken hold of you. Joy has seized you as Christ has seized you. If you have been found in him, you have found, you've attained unshakable, irremovable, transcendent, joy. So we strain for joy. We press on towards joy, knowing that as we are working out 
our sanctification, we are working out our joy, which is not a process that we would often call enjoyable. But even as Paul presses on, we see that it requires every bit, every part of us to press, to strain, to look. And we're reminded again that all it takes is fixing our eyes. The call is to simply look at Jesus, and the rest of your body will follow. I hope we see, even as we we consider these verses and these passages, that the Christian life, every aspect of it, is about Jesus. The beginning, the end, everything in between centers around Jesus. Your life, your breath, your meaning, your purpose, Jesus. But Paul has more for us. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What Paul implies earlier in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, he makes very clear here. Look to the examples of those who faithfully serve and follow Jesus. Understand what Paul is saying here is don't imitate me because I am Christ himself, but because I am faithfully struggling to run after him, towards him. Being an example to others is about faithfully struggling to press on in the race that we've been called And so what does this look like? You've already seen and heard this as you guys have walked through Philippians in these weeks. In the poem of Philippians chapter 2, the the glorious poem of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. That is the example we are called to follow. The one, the prize that has been set before us. This is what we are called to model together. And so Paul says, grab onto godly examples like those but also recognize that in the same way there are examples, identities, and patterns that are meant to follow, there are those that we recognize are in opposition to the cross, opposition to life and to your joy. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are patterns that lead to life and joy, There are patterns that lead to death. Verses 17 to 21, Paul, he contrasts two dramatically opposed patterns of behavior, patterns of life, patterns that exemplify identity. Paul struggles to write these words, knowing that in that moment around him are eternal beings whose walk is not towards the joy set before them in Christ, but who've made themselves enemies of Jesus. Paul is teaching us with heaviness how we might feel about those who walk in opposition to him. That we would rightly see that we are not enemies to these people. That the souls of those who walk in opposition to Christ are not enemies. That instead our instinct should not be to attack or defend ourselves, but to pray, to mourn, that God would open hearts 
to see the cross not as insufficient, grotesque, but as beautiful, precious, and enough. We want this because, verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul points to a final destination. Enemies of the cross have not found life to look forward to. Death hovers over the horizon. Separation from the kindness of God God's mercy awaits because God is their belly, ruled by desires. G-O-D looks a little more like M-E, ruled by appetites that will not find satisfaction in what life can offer. Being ruled by our stomachs means living in obedience to whatever cravings you feel in the moment. Glorying in their shame means finding a false joy in things we wrongly think will bring fullness to us. Having our minds set on earthly things means instead of setting our hopes and sights on Christ, instead of seeing the cross as a place of healing, we've seen it as a place of grossness and earthly pleasures as the only thing that give us hope. Pathways in the brain are made by connections between neurons. When a behavior is performed, the connections between these cells change with frequency of the behavior done. The more you do something, the more and more of a habit it will become in your life. And so these neural pathways are like grooves in the roadmaps of our brain. The more frequently we travel the road, the stronger and more second nature the behavior becomes. And so what Paul is telling us is that for those opposed to the cross, this mindset has been etched in the brain. Left has become right. God has become self. And so the remedy is to practice traveling down new roads or neural pathways by performing new behaviors with frequent repetition, connecting new beliefs to support the new behavior, as well as visualizing positive outcomes resulting in these new behaviors. But what is possible, though difficult for us to do with habits, is an impossible thing to do when it comes to looking and following Jesus. And so Paul wants to make clear that this work This newness that is required of us can only be done through the Christ who takes hold of us. The Jesus who seizes us from the clutches of death and Satan. He gives us new minds to follow the path of his example, his life, his death, and to example to others what it means to follow after him. Jesus has made us new, not in part, but in whole. Our identities at our cores have been changed. Paul says as much in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have not opposed the cross, but we have embraced the cross. Our end is not destruction. Our end is resurrection. Our God is not our appetite. Our God is Christ. We glory not in our shame, but we glory in Jesus' name. As kingdom citizens, everything has changed for us. 
The ideas around citizenship would have resonated strongly, loudly with the church of Philippi. They had been taught to take great pride in belonging to Rome. But Paul was now calling them to abandon this first calling in their citizenship on earth and to look to a new calling as citizens of heaven. At birth, you are made citizens of your homeland. For many of us, that's these states. For others, it's places around the world. But in and through the Spirit, we are born again. We are made new. We have received new documents sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our passports don't read United States, but heaven, which means we represent a new king to the world. Family, like any other country, there are expectations of us as citizens of heaven. And Paul's call, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As an American, if I were to travel to many places around the world, It'd be pretty quick for the people to figure out I am not one of them. You may recognize that in my accent, the language I speak, my lack of ability to speak their language, and some of my American nuances. But they'd be unsurprised to know that I'm not one of them, and perhaps unsurprised to find out that I am American. I wonder for how many of us, as we encounter those around us, how many of them would be surprised to know where our citizenship lies? How many of us would have to take out our birth certificates, our passports, to prove that we've been made citizens of heaven? Or would they see it? Would they see it in our Christ-like character, our love for the least of these, our patience towards, the, uh, towards those who are ununderstanding and undeserving? Would they hear it in our gentleness, in our demeanor, in our pursuit of peace? The point Paul is making is that because we've been brought into a new citizenship, a new commonwealth, we've been transformed and changed and now reflect the place where we belong. And this is possible, this change is possible not because we are capable, but because the believer's heavenly power is a present reality. Jesus has made perfection accessible to you today. But we know that this is only in part. But this part will soon become whole. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, verse 20, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform from our lower body, to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We await a Savior, Jesus, who will transform our low condition, our beaten, bruised, broken bodies into his perfect, eternal, glorious body. These words are meant to bring us back to that poem in chapter 2 as we consider the same Jesus who took on our low condition, who humbled himself, took on death itself, who has now been exalted by God 
that every knee should bow and confess that Jesus, who is Lord, who took on our humiliation, will now bring us vindication and glory. Paul's hope, his ability to find joy, to press on, was because his hope was not set on something abstract. His hope was not set on something wishy-washy. His hope was set on something sure and certain. This is why Paul could have joy in these circumstances. Why Paul, even with those who, to spite him, would preach the gospel, those who would put him in jail, those who would beat him, despite these discouragements and circumstances, Paul can hold on to joy because his hope is set on something much greater than his circumstance. Saints, where your hope is will determine where you can find joy. Where your hope is will determine where you can find joy. Paul's hope in Jesus led him to new citizenship, which means access to the benefits of that kingdom, which means access to glorious joy. A hope in Jesus means joy in Christ who has brought us into that same kingdom. Recognize your citizenship, sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, has given you access to something that cannot be stolen from you. Satan cannot steal your joy. Oh, he can, he can scheme. He can plan. He can set obstacles on your path, but he cannot steal what Jesus has obtained for you. Circumstances cannot steal your joy. They can unsettle us. They can cause legitimate pain. They can disappoint. We will experience loss, but circumstances cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ where your joy is found. People will let you down. They can and will betray you. They can wound you deeply, but they cannot steal your access into the heavenly which means they cannot steal your joy. As we respond to Paul's words, I want to invite you into what you already have attained in Christ. This is not new, but maybe it's been a while since you've enjoyed the benefits of your kingdom citizenship. So I just want to invite you as we as we move into song, as we move to respond, come to the altar. Respond in your seat. Look upon the beauty of your Christ, who has already obtained your joy, and enjoy the benefits. For those of you who are still asking questions about Jesus, it's so good that you are here. We're thankful that you are here you are being invited to enjoy these same benefits. To come, to be born again, 
to receive your new birth certificate, to receive your passport into the heavenly kingdom of God, where Christ reigns, where joy can be found, eternal, unshakable. Church, we are meant to look at him. We are meant to simply fix our eyes upon him. In this room, there's pain, there's confusion. We are hurting, we are confused. And in looking to Christ, you are not setting those things aside. Joy does not mean forgetting circumstance. Joy does not mean forgetting pain. Joy is seeing the hope that has been set for us. Joy is looking above and being reminded of what awaits. Joy is knowing that glorious perfection is coming. Joy is knowing that there is purpose in our life. So we are being invited now to come, to look to Christ, see that hope, and to experience the joy. I'm just going to pray if you want to stand and just invite you, again, to respond in any way you need to. Father, we thank you for this glorious word. We thank you for the pen in which Paul wrote and reminded us of these truths, that we are still looking at perfection, and yet Christ has perfected his people. And in that perfection, we have been given benefits. We have been given things that cannot be taken, stolen from us. Help us, Lord, to again bring our eyes back to the source We have wandered our gaze away from you. We've looked away for a moment, for a second, for an hour, for weeks, for months, for years. Help us to bring our gaze back to the source of our joy. Father, help us to look to you, to crawl, to walk, to stumble, to fix our gaze upon the beauty of your majesty, the beauty of your glory. Help us to see you, Jesus, that we might be transformed by the heavenly, made into the perfect image of you, that we might enjoy the fullness of the joy that has been given to us.